You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Everything that I knew, I didn't know anymore. That defense mode. We're survivors. Like... But they're probably not the questions that you want answered. So, yeah, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia, and I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we will be joined by hematologist Dr. Michael Morrow from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and Aaron Zamet-Ruddy, who is a writer, author, blogger, and survivor. So we know that chemotherapy and radiation can cause late effects that may manifest months or years after treatment has ended, and one possible late effect is infertility, which is the inability to conceive a child naturally. Dr. Morrow, how can treatment for blood cancers affect fertility? Sure. Thanks, by the way, Alicia and Lizette, for having me on. And uh, this is a very really, uh, important topic. It's often under-discussed. You know, the, the intensity and the urgency of a cancer diagnosis, we sometimes forget to talk about fertility, fertility preservation, and what it means uh, for the future. But in simple terms, many of the treatments of cancer can significantly affect fertility. Some can um, render someone infertile. Uh, so it's that serious uh, so it really depends on the diagnosis and the treatment, um, and we often do have time to discuss, can we preserve fertility? Can we do something to uh, plan for the future? It may not, we may do something in the short term which allows for fertility to be preserved in the long term, even though treatment or side effects may render someone infertile or less capable of being fertile, whether it's a man or a woman. We have definitely better treatments for cancer, and even though we have now targeted therapy, Oral, oral agents with lower toxicity profiles and, uh, thank goodness, probably less effects on fertility. It's still a very important question. It's still the possibility that um, it, it needs to be discussed in the same context, that the future may be uncertain. There may be a period of time, sometimes short time, sometimes long, when fertility is not possible. But we certainly want to keep the door open for men, women, couples, families um, at, at all points. So. Overall, it's, it's a major topic that needs to be discussed as quickly as possible to plan for the future. It may be unavoidable, uh, but there are many things that can be done, and fortunately there are many good treatments now which are making cancer treatment better and less likely to, to um, be a black-and-white um, story for fertility. Thank you. So on episode, if we have more than one speaker, they know each other or they don't know each other, and we kind of have to introduce them. Erin, how do you know Dr. Morrow? Oh, goodness. Um, I have known Dr. Morrow for almost 16 years. We met when I was 23 and had just been diagnosed with chronic myelogenous leukemia. I was living in New York City at the time, but uh, Dr. Morrow was working at Oregon Health and Sciences University in Portland, Oregon. And I decided to fly out there to meet 
Dr. Morrow and Dr. Drucker, who were doing uh, some exciting things with a drug called Gleevec, uh, which I ultimately was able to get on. And Dr. Morrow became my doctor. And 16 years later, we're, we're still here and, and doing exciting things. And we have known each other for a long time. We have been through a lot, right, Dr. Morrow? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I had the pleasure of meeting Erin when she was just diagnosed. And as she said, we were just into an era where we had an approved medication, Gleevec, for her type of leukemia. She actually was a participant in a clinical trial using an additional medication with Gleevec. But you know, right away, that's a perfect example where I have a young woman who at that point wasn't married and her whole life was in front of her. And Erin was one of the most amazing patients I've ever had, the way she embraced um, what she was facing, her diagnosis, her battle with bravery and a public face and uh, openness and honesty. And uh, we probably didn't talk a lot about fertility in the very beginning, Erin, as I, as I recall. I think it clearly came up, but I think we were, again, into this era where we had we knew we were able to access treatment, which probably wasn't going to, to be black and white. But clearly, as we got into treatment and as her life moved forward and she got married and, and that became a very relevant issue, um, as it naturally does, we, um, we've tackled this topic a few times. Do you guys remember who brought up the topic? Was it you, doctor? Uh, was it Aaron? Well, I, I remember the first, the, my very first cancer appointment when I was in the city still at Sloan Kettering uh, before Dr. Morrow was there. It was my first appointment. I had just been diagnosed with cancer. And my mom and dad were in the room with me. And my mom said, you know, we were asking four million questions. We were all very upset and anxious. And she said, well, what about having children? And I kind of shot her daggers. And I was like, mom, dad, <laughs> you know, I was 23. I was, you know, living in the city. I wasn't even thinking that. But she was she was right to ask that question, and and in retrospect, like it's very important that cancer patients do ask that question because there are things that that cancer patients can do to you know preserve fertility, and and it's, it's certainly a valid a valid question to ask. I was lucky because I knew that with Gleevec, <clears throat> which is the the treatment option uh, I chose, I was able to. I knew that down the road, all my doctors kind of assured me, you know, it, it wasn't going to affect my fertility. This drug. Whether I could go off the drug or not and have children down the road was another, you know, hurdle that we would cross when the time came. But it wasn't that I had to do anything immediately before starting treatment, if that makes sense. And then when did we talk about it? Goodness, Dr. Morrow was at my wedding. I'm, I hope I didn't bring wow. it up that night. <laughs> <laughs> I, hope, I hope I didn't bring it up that night. But um, I think it was always on the back burner. It was something that we discussed. You know, I would come visit him and, you know, we would talk about it. But I really wanted to um, be married and, and enjoy that time for a little bit before having to talk about it because I knew that for me it wasn't going to be very simple. I would have to do a lot of um, a lot of research, a lot of discussion, a lot of soul searching, a lot of, you know, should we, shouldn't we. But I'm sure that it just sort of came up naturally. And, and like everything that, that he and I discuss over the years, it's there's lots of lead up to it. It's not, not nothing was sprung on either of us. I knew Erin um, needed to get on with her treatment, but I also knew we probably could pass on some of the, the things other patients need to talk about, which might be harvesting embryos or eggs if you're a woman or, you know, for men, sperm cryopreservation. Um, talking to a couple, we didn't, we, Erin wasn't, uh, wasn't married yet, and I didn't think we had that circumstance where we had to, you know, talk about that. And then it did kind of naturally come. But I am a pretty strong advocate for, you know, for for women in this in this space. And uh, so I knew it was coming. And she and I didn't know it, but you know, the research was pointing us in a direction where we that door was going to open more readily. 
so so it kind of just evolved naturally um, with the great results she had and 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 her life evolving. So you mentioned being diagnosed at 23, Aaron. Dr. Mara said you had so much of your life ahead of you. What were you doing at that point of your life when you were diagnosed? I was living in New York City. I was working at Glamour Magazine. I was basically living the life that I had always hoped to live. I was super excited. I was hanging out with friends. I I felt like my life was really just getting started in the city, and um, I had a ton of dreams. I was super ambitious, and I didn't really ever, no one expects to be diagnosed with cancer, but certainly at 23, that came as a, as a huge shock. What was almost equally shocking is that it didn't really slow me down. Because of this drug, Gleevec, because of Dr. Morrow's care, I was able to continue to do all of the things that I, that I had wanted to do. And I still worked at Glamour. I still wrote. Actually, I wrote more. And as, as you know, I was still able to have children as well. So that was pretty, Remarkable, I think, uh, for cancer diagnosis, because I think when I was first diagnosed those first few days, my family and I were certainly not thinking that I would be continuing my normal life. So, Dr. Mark, can you kind of walk us through, um, you know, Aaron coming to your office, you letting them know kind of what the diagnosis was, you know, fast forwarding to the conversations about fertility. To her and for others in similar situations, how do you then begin that journey or that route of working with your patient who then wants to consider having children? Sure. You know, it's, it's a little bit more black and white, I think, for other patients who probably face some, you know, predictable risk of maybe losing their fertility or diminishing their fertility when before they get treatment or from their treatment. They then go through cancer treatment and hopefully it's successful. And hopefully then they're in remission and one can then assess, so where are we, where are we now? Is fertility impaired? Is it absent? What can we do based on some actions that might have been taken early in the diagnosis? So that sounds like the, the, um, formula that it should have been, but, um, Erin's diagnosis and her treatment were quite different. The uh, type of leukemia that Erin had, chronic myeloid leukemia, has really set an example for a different kind of treatment where people take a lower, a lower risk, but yet still chemotherapy, a targeted drug, um, for an extended period of time. At the time when Erin was in a fantastic deep remission and was very keen to start a family, as she naturally should have been asking about, we didn't have final answers about how that looked. So we were in a bit of, a, of an uncharted waters. I can tell you in 2017, the story with this diagnosis is that patients, a good number of patients can get into a good enough remission where they can follow that same pattern, where they, they may be done with their treatment and safe enough to do whatever they wish, whether it's you know conceive and um, you know, carry a child if it's a mother or, or be a father if it's a man. So we had to go on best available knowledge, which was would it be safe for her to stop her treatment? Probably the most important thing about cancer therapy and pregnancy is not only what it can do to a woman or man and impair their fertility, but it's what might the effect be on an unborn child if there's exposure. Some exposure is unavoidable. If a woman has had treatment, the elements of conception for a woman, the you know, the ovaries contain all the eggs for life. For the woman, any chemotherapy exposure, in, in turn, the, the potential uh, effects on, on fertility are, are there, meaning it's for men it's different. You know, spermatogenesis or sperm production is, a, is an ongoing process. It sort of recycles every six weeks, so that's a different issue. So when Erin wanted to conceive, we knew that she had had exposure to treatment, including an older medication called citerabine in addition to Gleevec, um, which is used in leukemia, but we had expected that her fertility would be preserved. And we faced a bigger question, which is, was it safe for her to stop her treatment and would she stay in the excellent remission she was in off treatment? And at the time, that was a research question for people, not embracing that question for the for the purpose of getting pregnant, just for the purpose of, is it possible? 
So we were in a much different situation. The, the common situation is what happened in the beginning. Was fertility preserved? How did treatment affect my fertility? I'm in remission. My doctors told me I have a, have a green light. It's safe. I think, Aaron, you probably would acknowledge, you know, we had maybe a yellow light. We had no idea what the future held. Yes, yellow light. That's that's sounds about right. I think that my parents and everyone else who was, you know, Dr. Morrow and I were, were pretty gung-ho about it. I don't know. Gung-ho is the wrong word, I would say. I was gung-ho about it. But I think that everyone else who was keeping score at home, if you will, was kind of really nervous, you know, and I was really nervous too. Uh, but I knew that for me, uh, being having been part of that clinical trial, that original clinical trial, and then having the care that I got from Dr. Morrow and knowing that I had such constant care and people there for me, and I was so closely monitored, and we really – I went and saw a fertility specialist in the city. I went through all of these tests. I made sure, you know, that my husband, that his sperm was healthy, that my my body was healthy, that we actually could conceive because we didn't want to go through all of this trouble to find out if we could do it cancer-wise and then find out that, you know, like many other women and men, that we, we had an issue otherwise. So there are people at the time, there are people now who still can't believe that I would have taken that risk. And I know a lot of other patients, cancer patients, CML patients who chose surrogacy or chose adoption because they just didn't want to take this chance. But I try to remind them and that this wasn't just, oh, let's do it. You know, we, we put in months and months of, of, of homework and research and really had all of our ducks in a row so that we could minimize the risk. And, you know, that said, Every time we had a blood test every month and every month, I remember being incredibly nervous thinking, is this the month that's going to, going to come back? But we did. I mean, Dr. Morrow, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we had like several backup plans. Like worst case, I could go on interferon because I could do that while pregnant or leukophoresis if we had to. Like we had, we had some backup plans. They weren't ideal, but. Exactly. I think you, uh, you raised some of the. Some of the issues that face really everyone, which is, um, is it safe to do that? I mean, I think probably any any person who's maybe not the man, because I think is not to be flippant, but the man's you know role in fertility is relatively limited. Whereas a woman, we have a you know we have a long commitment to caring a child, delivering. Of course, both parents take care of the child and support them. That's I'm not trying to trivialize that, but it's the um, fear. What happens if something goes wrong during the pregnancy? If I need treatment or my cancer comes back? Or that question was literally front and center staring us in the face um, with this kind of leukemia because we didn't know that answer. It was a gamble. I mean, I probably said we have a, this is about a 50-50 chance that the leukemia would remain in remission during the pregnancy. That was based on best available information. So we, what, we weren't operating completely in the dark. And as you said, we, we knew we had things we could do, not resume your treatment you were on, but other treatments. And those, you know, patients have those same options today. But uh, the CML patient faces a, uh, the, a woman with CML faces the double challenge of um, is this what I want to do? Do I want to uh, be off treatment and see if I can stay in remission and in turn make that my opportunity to uh, to achieve pregnancy and carry a baby to term? And uh, it's complicated. Uh, it's complicated for any patient with cancer, of course. But th- this one, this, it's it, it, the, the two are completely overlapping. The um, am I going to stay in remission and am I going to be able to conceive and successfully complete a pregnancy? Erin, you were probably one of the first people that actually wanted to go through this journey and actually successfully went through this journey. So I feel like people are looking at you and they're looking at your journey and I feel like there's hope there. And I think that there's more knowledge now, doctor. And is there, I mean, 
I think what you said is definitely true. People probably view Erin's story, and many people know Erin's story because she's been very public and open about it. She's one of the pioneers, and, and people, you know, women probably feel braver knowing that someone like Erin you know, was able to do what she did and as came out on the other end um, in good, good, good condition and, and well. I think, ironically, we don't know differently about the way we manage it in this specific case. We still have about a 50-50 chance of, of retaining remission if someone stops treatment. Um, we know a lot more about how to choose the person who may be, you know, best suited to think about stopping treatment. And, and you know, if, if you're able to stop your treatment, your doctor thinks you're a reasonable person to stop your treatment and be up and be very carefully monitored, which is still relatively new, just basically past the experimental stage and just out and ready for prime time. If you're eligible for that, then you might be eligible to be, you know, to consider pregnancy, if, especially if you're a woman. Um, and that's really the, 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 the more, more focused population. But the trouble is, your reaction to if the if the 50/50 chance goes the wrong way and your leukemia returns if you're pregnant you can't exactly resume treatment right away the results we the, the knowledge we do have now is that if if this type of leukemia returns it's generally within the first 6 months and maybe six 9 months not 6 months um so we we uh, have a little bit of a conflict there so i talk to women all the time and uh, you know i'm hopeful what we're where I'm proud to say I'm going to be hopefully part of um, a group of physicians that's going to write some guidelines for other doctors to say, how do you manage someone who has this type of leukemia and who wants to become pregnant? Uh, what do we know? What, what, what has the outcome been of folks who, who like Erin, who will be part of that, you know, that research, um, who stopped their medication to uh, achieve pregnancy, was successfully able to deliver, and the leukemia didn't return during pregnancy? Erin um, has a even more complicated story she can share with you about her CML journey. Ultimately, we tried to stop treatment just for the sake of stopping treatment, which, which unfortunately wasn't successful, which is why she's still on uh, Gleevec. So it's, 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 it, one never knows. Um, but when it comes to pregnancy, we were able to, to manage through quite successfully three times. Three times? Yes. Wow. I, I may have <laughs> stole your thunder, Erin. <laughs> no, 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 never stole, you never stole my thunder. Well, no, three times. But to, to go back to, is it, you know, I was one of the first, I think, who did this, certainly very public about it. And I, I, I mean, I don't know how many people I refer to Dr. Morrow a ton. So I'm so glad to hear that you're writing these guidelines because people will often email me, Facebook me, whatever, and say, you know, and ask me questions. And I'm very open, but I always do obviously tell them to talk to their own doctors. But not everyone is as lucky as I am that I have Dr. Morrow as my main doctor. So it's, you know, some doctors are, you know, are a little nervous about saying, sure, go off your dog and have your baby. You know, that, that is definitely something that <laughs> you have to really think about. And I'm, I'm certainly not giving advice, but I am happy to be a beacon of hope for people who still want to have the families that they had hoped for when, before they were diagnosed. So I do share a lot of my story, and um, I'm always happy to refer people to, to Dr. Morrow. So depending on the time of diagnosis, doctor, we know that there may be steps before treatment that can begin to help preserve fertility. What are those options for males and females? For men, I think the things we need to think about for in, the, in this area, in the, in the, when facing cancer, or even extending to if my partner has cancer, for men, it's quite simple. Um, you can cryopreserve sperm, which can then be used for in vitro fertilization. Um, it can also be used for other procedures where you can have intrauterine implantation, meaning that uh, something that's been preserved can be placed where it should be uh, during conception to allow for pregnancy to happen. For men, again, that, that, that's a fairly, it's a very low risk, very easy process, and it's just something that has to be spoken about and done and um, can be done rather quickly. Um, so under some circumstances, it, it's, it can be a challenge, but even it, it can even be done surgically, meaning a, a urologist, a physician can actually 
harvest from a man that, you know, the sperm that's needed to conceive a child that doesn't have to be produced by the man. So that's what men need to think about for women. I think it's an area that continues to evolve. We know that if a woman is married and the, the time is of the essence, there can be, you know, a woman's um, ovum or eggs can be harvested from the ovary. They can, she can be stimulated to, to sort of produce as if she was cycling and was fertile. Um, they can be removed surgically. They can be removed um, endoscopically by a gentler procedure. And, and the, you know, an in vitro fertilization can happen. It can be carried by another person, a surrogate. If a woman's facing cancer, that may be the reason why this is all happening, and she may not be able to carry the pregnancy. I think fertility specialists hold a very high success rate with being able to essentially make a baby from the products of conception and make sure it's got a home, all with technology, meaning either you know the products are harvested in some way or another or obtained, it's done in the laboratory, and then as long as it's put in the right place and it's you know it's it's uh, supported, it'll it'll thrive, and and you can have a successful pregnancy. What's a little bit less certain is. If a woman isn't married, doesn't have a partner, and we just want to uh, think about a, a future conception, meaning harvesting unfertilized eggs, that's a that's a little bit of a harder procedure. I think it, there's um, they may not be as high success, although I think it's improved dramatically. I'm a hematologist, not a fertility specialist, but I I need to be familiar with these these options, and I you know that that's immediately where I would refer someone to a to a fertility specialist to say, so I'm a woman and I've just been diagnosed with cancer. I'm maybe I'm married, maybe I'm not, maybe I have a partner or not, I, or I have ideas about how I'd like to preserve my fertility. What what are my options? There are definitely many options. Again, for men, it's much more simple. For women, there are a number of different ways it can happen. This is something we got to talk about and pursue. And for women, do you have to start the conversation a little bit earlier just because I know there's some treatments that can cause premature menopause? Yes, any complications could could change fertility or infertility. It, it could be by um, by that simple fact of bringing on menopause early. That's a common um, result, unfortunately, of many different treatments. So that that would just run the clock down rather than change, you know, biology or physiology or, or harm products of conception. So it's um or, or potential products of conception. So yes. The other point, just to make, I think it often takes a little bit more time for a woman to preserve her fertility than a man. So there is sometimes time needed, for example, to uh, take medication to harvest the 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 eggs, the ovum, you know, or to successfully accomplish an in vitro uh, fertilization if a woman's married and, and find a surrogate if it needs to be through a surrogate or, you know, sort all that out. That can take a little bit of time. And often a cancer diagnosis, you know, you're diagnosed today and you're starting treatment tomorrow, especially when it comes to blood cancers. We, we have a particular challenge there or more other serious cancers. Erin, earlier you mentioned uh, making the decision with your husband. How important was it to have, you know, the support at that time and for anyone listening who or is making the decision with their husband, what advice would you give to them? I think you definitely have to be on the same page. I think having kids is a challenge without cancer, and certainly doing this with cancer, it's it's challenging, and it's important that you both agree on the on the timing of it all. And I'm assuming if you're listening to this podcast, you want to, you know what I mean, this is a topic that you're interested in and you want to have kids, so, right? So that that you can check that box. My husband, Nick, and I, both definitely wanted to have kids, and we both knew that we, this was a, a risk we were willing to take. We talked about it a lot, but then we also, at a certain point, you kind of have to stop talking about it and obsessing about it and just watch some bad TV on Bravo, you know, some reality <laughs> TV. It's something to take your mind off of things because you can really, really talk yourself into a tizzy if you let yourself, and you have to just try to find people that you can talk to who are supportive and who maybe challenge you and ask questions that you should be asking. But 
Um, I think it's important to surround yourself with positive people and who pe- people who want this for you as much as you want it for yourself. And that should include, obviously, your doctors, but definitely family members and, and your partner and, and all that. It's, it's huge. It's, it's huge to have that support. It's necessary. When you began chronicling your journey, were you surprised at the responses of others who read and kind of either could relate or just intrigued by the entire thing? What feedback were you getting? So in general, I, I received a lot of incredible feedback. I think, you know, again, this is almost 16 years ago that I was writing about it in, in Glamour magazine. This was pre-blog days, so there wasn't as much content out there as there is now, and there certainly weren't many cancer patients who were 23 and still living in the city and working and having a, a good life, and I felt like that was a message that I really wanted to get out there because uh, I think that you know, hopefully it's, it's why, it's why we all work so hard and donate money and fundraise for LLS. And hopefully we're going to get to a point where more and more people can have cancer and be treated that way. Um, you know, take a pill and, and continue to live their life. So I felt like that was a story that needed to be out there. And the having children component was, you know, it's, it's huge. I'm, I'm going to be 40 next year and. I can't believe it. You know, I was diagnosed with cancer at 23, and I didn't know if I was going to live five years. I certainly didn't know if I was going to be able to have children. And here I am turning 40. I don't run marathons like Dr. Morrow, but I probably could if I forced myself to. I did run a half marathon, and, you know, I feel great. I have these three kids. So I think people appreciate that because I think there there are a lot of negative stories out there or or sad stories, and I want to be able to give people hope. So I do get some really great feedback and people, one person in particular that I just got a Facebook message from, it's a 15 year old girl who had just been diagnosed with CML and she reached out to me and she said that she, she's, I guess she must follow me on Instagram or whatever. I had taken a photo of myself getting a blood test and I still cringe getting a blood test. I don't mind it, but I can't look. And she said, oh, that made me feel so good to see that, you know, here you are all these years later and you still don't like it because I don't like it. And she said that she read all my stuff and it made her feel so hopeful and that somebody, you know, I'm obviously not 15. I, I could probably be her mother at this point, but but she felt like I was a young person with cancer. And she really, so so getting those messages definitely keeps me going and and reminds me that it's important to share this stuff. I think my husband thinks I share too much sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> On your blog, you tell me when you overshare, which, I mean, it, it's interesting things. So. <laughs> oh, I'm a big oversharer. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I think it's important because I remember when I was diagnosed, there was nobody. There was no, I didn't know any other young cancer patients that were talking about it. I mean, certainly in the time that I've been diagnosed, the young cancer movement has has happened and there's so many great things out there for young cancer patients and for fertility and all of that. But, but it really wasn't, it really wasn't a thing 16 years ago. So I feel like, I feel very lucky that I've been able to do it and, and will continue to do it to share my story and to, to help in any way I can so that people like that 15 year old girl or like somebody, you know, p- people that email me all the time saying, I want to go off my drug to have a baby. What was it like? How did you feel? Did you, you know, what did, all the questions that they ask me? I feel very lucky that I can be here to help those people. And you decided to do this three times. That's what Dr. Morrow said, right? You have three children. I I did do. I did it three times. And I remember when I was thinking about having the second, Dr. Morrow said, well, it really wasn't a matter of how many. He said, what did you say? It was very, very funny. But you were like, 
the the question was if we're going to do it, not how many times. So it worked once, and then he was like, <laughs> okay, like if we did it once, I guess we could do it again. You know, it was the the big dilemma was deciding do we or do we not do this. And then once we did, it was like, ah, oh, we'll just keep having kids. But after three, it, we certainly weren't that flip about it. But after three. <laughs> Uh, that was plenty. But I will tell you, the second time around was so much more <sighs> relaxing, right, Dr. Morrow? It was not as nerve-wracking at all. And then with the third, I don't even really, I don't even think we worried. It was really nice, you know. I mean, you probably worried, Dr. Morrow. I didn't worry as much. My mom worried. You and my mom worried. <laughs> I think that's my job is to, uh, yeah. is to uh, my worry level really didn't change. It might have actually gone up. Um, um, I might have been trying to keep you keep you optimistic about it and say things like, "Well, the third one's a charmer." And, yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, my part is obviously a little bit more serious. And back to Alicia, your question, first question, Aaron, about you know our husband. I sort of have the tough job of being open and honest with couples as they're talking about you know. So what if what happens if something goes wrong? Uh, especially when there's this dual challenge of stopping treatment and seeing if we can become pregnant because um, it can put us in a corner where we have um, a pregnancy that's moving along and a mother whose health's at risk and what do we do and sometimes people make different decisions so we have to iron out those decisions how are we going to handle the, the, the worst case scenarios even to the point to talk to a partner to say that you know this this could mean trouble for your your spouse uh, for your, it, it's generally in the direction of, the, of this could be this can mean trouble for your, your wife and you need to be prepared to you know take care of her and the baby or the baby if if something something horrible happens and i i need to be open and honest with people and ask them those kinds of questions so i i probably put you in if yeah, i put you guys through that Naren, didn't i <laughs> oh yeah but on the other hand, there's tremendous optimism. I think, I think this whole question about can patients stop treatment, um, in this type of leukemia and, you know, I hope this is setting the example for other cancers where we have better treatments that aren't so hard on patients that can cure their cancer and allow them to move on with life and preserve their fertility. I think it probably was stemming from the fact that of, uh, of pregnancy. It's just a, that's such a natural extension of life and, um, it should be the thing you want to preserve the most and make sure that you don't forget about it. And I think it's so great, Dr. Morrow, that you're such a strong advocate for this because, Aaron, when you heard the cancer diagnosis, your reaction was very much like, where did, where did this come from? Out of nowhere. You know, you're 23, you work at Glamour, you're kind of doing your own thing, and then this comes up, and you're, you're thrown into a whole different world that you never could have imagined, and you forget the details of life. And I think fertility is one of those things that a lot of the people that we speak to, a lot of patients that we speak to, they kind of push it off to the side as a not-for-me type of thing because of everything that they now have to go through with themselves and their families. So I think having such a strong advocate, you know, be a doctor and having and being such a strong voice, Erin, allows for people to kind of see that it, it could be a possibility depending on kind of where they stand in their diagnosis. Absolutely. I mean, I think that to have to give that up is, you know, it's in many cases really not necessary. And I think that Dr. Morrow is so great about that because he's not just there to treat the cancer. I mean, I think a lot of doctors, their job is to cure you or get you well, and the rest of it is really not, that's not their problem. But I think that there are a lot of great doctors like Dr. Morrow out there who understand that we are, you know, we're not just cancer patients. We, we want, we want everything. We want the lives that we had hoped for ourselves and, and that can still be possible in, in many ways. And it may not always be the way you thought it would be, uh, you know, you may have to explore other ways to become a parent, but, and it may be harder work and you may have to go see different specialists and do all these crazy things, but 
in the end, I think that Dr. Morrow always, you know, he understands. He's a big family guy, and, and he understands why someone would want to have a family, and, and he helps so many people do that. And I think that if I could say anything to patients, it would be if, you, if you're finding, if you're hitting, a, you're, you know, you're hitting a dead end with the doctors that you have, I think it's worth finding people who might be able to help you or to certainly refer you to to even Dr. Morrow's literature that he's going to be writing about this because there are people out there who are doing these things and it's not, it's hard with a disease like CML because it's still so relatively new, right? I mean, right, Dr. Morrow, like with this 16 years ago, this wasn't something people were doing and now it's very common for people to say, hey, I want to have kids. So I think that we have to remember that, that we're still kind of writing the script as we go along. The research that um, we base our comfort increasingly now about stopping treatment uh, potentially for pregnancy stems from stopping treatment in general and that's just February of this year that that has become incorporated as a standard approach it before that it was considered experimental but I think I'm encouraged by my colleagues and my the field of oncology hematology oncology both that people are increasingly recognizing it my group here at Sloan Kettering just the other day met with our fertility nurse specialist to say how can we do better can we ask more can we ask earlier can we you know how can we educate better so it's, it's an active topic of conversation and uh, as Aaron said, if you don't get the answers you're needing, you've you got to push. In regards to questions, what questions would you suggest um, listeners ask if they're considering fertility and kind of want to explore that with their healthcare team? I think just raising the topic as a general discussion. I, I understand all you're saying, um, and I know it may not be that what's on your mind, but I'm, I'm, I'd like to have a family someday, whether you're a man, woman of any age, say, what do we need to do now? What do I need to do, know now? And I think there are many good specialist that that is their expertise so not not that the primary treating physician can manage those questions or their team but to seek another specialist in that same area or your own other doctor if you're a woman if you have a if you know talk to your gynecologist of obstetrician gynecologist they I'm, I'm sure that's, that's something they'll know more about or will we'll be able to facilitate a conversation so it, it just has to be discussed but the basic questions are what do I need to do right now before I receive any treatment or what can I do right now what, what might happen during my treatment what are your expectations at the end of treatment? Quite pointed questions. Will I be able to, you know, father a child, carry a pregnancy, have children someday? So, Aaron, in addition to what Dr. Morrow just mentioned, are there any additional questions you think patients should ask? I think that it's important, if you can do this, to start the conversation before you want to, you know, before you're ready to become a parent, um, because there is going to be a lot of things you have to do leading up to that. So don't go in and say, okay, I'm ready to have a baby. Like, can we talk about it? Because it might come as a surprise to your doctor. So I think laying that groundwork, laying that groundwork with, with yourself, with your spouse, with your, with your doctor, with your family, just talking about it. Like, this is something that I'm, that I'm interested in and I want to start doing the legwork to get there, I think is important. And then just, yeah, just asking if they have other patients, asking if there's people they can talk to. Dr. Morrow has always been very good at connecting some of his patients with me if they want to. And I think that something that I have found, like people who've done things like have children after having cancer or while having cancer, we're pretty excited about it. We're pretty happy to be here and we're willing to talk to other patients because we know how lucky we are. And I think that if you can find someone who's gone through it, you should try to do that. And, and asking your doctor about that is a good place to start. Erin, how did you feel when you heard that you were pregnant the first time? Well, it was it was very sort of, it wasn't as like, oh, I didn't just pee on a stick and say, oh, I'm pregnant. It wasn't like that um, <laughs> the first time because I had was seeing this fancy fertility specialist because we had to time my going off Gleevec with, you know, I wanted to go off, I think, 
what we had to do was go off the second I found out I was pregnant, basically, because at that time we didn't know that I could go off Gleevec for an extra two weeks, three weeks, three months. You know, you don't know how long it's going to take to get pregnant. It could be a very long time. So we waited until the second I got pregnant. And so in order to find that out early on, we had I uh, had some special tests done with this fertility specialist. So I found out like basically like the day after we conceived. And it was so it was definitely like slightly medical. I was sitting in my office at Glamour editing probably a story on sex and dating or you know, <laughs> what. And my doctor called me and told me that I was pregnant. So I was I was definitely excited. But it was, you know, I came to really, really love and rely on my drug because it kept me healthy and alive for so long. So to to know that, that at that moment I would not be taking it for the, the next nine months was a little like, whoa, you know. But, of course, I was super excited. I was definitely excited. But that was that was the moment. So it wasn't really like some, you know, movie scene. It was, it was, a, little, it was a little bit more uh, medical. Um, but it was very, very exciting. And you said that your mom is actually the first person that brought up fertility. Did she want to speak with him during this process just to get more information to see possibly how you might do? I, I know that they were very concerned about you going off your medication. That's It's interesting you say that because, Dr. Morrow, in all of the things I've done, like having my children and going off for that for the clinical trial when I just stopped um taking my Gleevec for, for that trial without having kids. He's always said, you know, he'll he'll talk to Nick, he'll talk to my parents, he'll talk to anyone who wants to sort of be talked through it. And I don't I don't know, probably. I mean, my mother and I flew to Oregon for years to see Dr. Morrow. So we have logged a lot of time together, um, the three of us. And so, <laughs> and she, yes, I'm sure there were many times in your office in Oregon where my mom would ask you all sorts of questions. Who knows? But she felt she she knew that at this point in my treatment, if Dr. Morrow said that it was going to be okay, we were pretty and he didn't say it's going to be okay. You know, he's still he's not going to say that. But, you know, mostly he thinks hopefully <laughs> pretty sure it's, it should be fine. But anyway, his word really means a lot in my family. And so. I don't know. I don't know. Did my mom secretly call you? Were you guys emailing you crazy questions, Dr. Morrow? I would not put it past her at all. No, I don't think that's actually um, looked on uh, favorably. Oh, HIPAA. Yeah. No, no, as you said, you know, I think think we had a a really good open dialogue with you between your family. And and to be honest with you, I think I kind of knew that it was going to raise some anxiety with, you know, your husband and your family, your sister's. That's natural. I think that's expected, much like it raises the question in someone who thinks about stopping treatment not to get pregnant or a woman or a man to, you know, think about getting pregnant after they've had cancer. Like, maybe I'm damaged some way. Maybe, um, you know, even though the doctors are giving me green lights, something bad is going to happen. My cancer is going to make my cancer come back. It's going to, the baby's not going to be right. The baby will have the same cancer. I get, I get, I get a lot of questions that are really easy to answer, but they're just natural questions people are going to have. So, of course, your family's going to say, wait a second, we just want to have you. We'd love to have you with a small person next to you, but uh, I, I think uh, we did, we handled it quite well. And we had this long, we had a long, it, much like a baby, we had a long gestation of your treatment, your remission. We had a lot of time to think about it and talk about it, and we had the uh, time was on our side because, you, uh, you know, your life changed over years. And Aaron, you said that you and your family ended up trusting Dr. Morrow and the advice that he gave you. How important is, is open and effective communication between a patient and a physician or a healthcare team? 
I think it's the most important thing. And I think that I, I talked to a lot of newly diagnosed patients, including friends recently, and I always tell them to, it may be awkward for a while, but you have to find a physician that you click with. You have to find somebody who you really feel like you can talk to and can, and can lean on because it's, it's not just a one and done situation. You know, you're going to, this person's going to be a part of your life. So I do think that communication is key. And especially when you're talking about fertility and pregnancy and, you, it's a long time. You're pregnant forever and you are going to, you know, <laughs> be going through, you know, hormones and all this other stuff. And you're going to want someone there who can reassure you and who you know is looking out for you. So I think that that is incredibly important. And if you don't have it in your current doctor, you should find a new doctor who you do feel like you have some kind of rapport with and, and can talk openly with. Absolutely. Erin, you mentioned a young woman who messaged you who was 15 years old and diagnosed with CML. Dr. Morrow, what conversations do you have with those looking to preserve fertility in children and teens with cancer? That's a great question. I think uh, the case of dyslipidemia in, in children is not one we face a lot because it's not that common. But, of course, there are many different conditions that, that children have to face. And it can be much more profound, I think, the impact on a developing you know, someone who's in their developing years, preteen, teen years, when fertility is actually being established can be pretty devastating. So I think it's even important. It's so important for a child. I wouldn't expect a 12 year old, you know, girl or, you know, to say, well, what about getting pregnant there? Our parents would probably, you know, fall, fall down if, if she asked that. But the parents need to ask too. They need to be thinking about their child's future. And I would be open and honest there too to say, you know, cause that, you know, I think children that face cancer are, are beyond their years. Not of course the very young, but anyone who has knowledge about this and in whom it's reasonable to talk about, not that you're talking in isolation, but as a family, they need to talk about that, say, you know, you want your life to be as normal as possible. There are things we, we should be talking about, we should be able to do. I mean, it's probably not an issue that's talked about like we talk about it in adults, but it, and, and there's a right context to do it there. So if a 15-year-old girl, if I was treating her for CML, I would, I would, you know, kind of speak to her probably with her parents about where she's at in her development and how, what I think might happen with her cancer treatment and make sure all those issues are on the table. They, they can be, they can be addressed and then tucked away to say, you know what, that's not something, you know, we're ready for or we're ready to talk about. That's okay. But if it's not talked about, it's a missed opportunity. And the, and the effects can be more profound when, when we treat the young, younger patients, especially before they've gone through puberty and develop. And what made you so comfortable with sharing your journey? I look at myself and I think, you know, I may not be able to share as much as you do, you know, through your blogs, through your writing. Your sharing has really helped a lot of people, and I do commend you for that. I just want to know, you know, how you feel so comfortable, and, and you do it so well. Thank you. I remember when I was first diagnosed, and I do remember a moment where I was thinking, you know, a, a lot of people wouldn't wouldn't say anything. I, I, I know people who have CML who don't share their story because you don't have to, because you're not going to lose your hair and you're not going to, you know, you could definitely keep this disease to yourself. I just felt like I'm, I already am an open book. It wasn't like cancer changed that in me. I definitely already was somebody who wanted to talk about whatever I was, you know, feeling. But I, I think my editor, Cindy Levy at Glamour, was the one who first came over to my desk at Glamour just a few days, a few weeks after I was diagnosed and said, you know, would you ever be interested in writing about your experience? Because I think that readers, our young female readers would be really, she said, intensely interested to know what it's like, what you're going through. And I said, wow. You know, of course, I, I was already writing about the experience. I had a million things to say about it. And then I think once I opened up 
a little bit and got that feedback, I realized that not only was I helping other people, but I definitely was helping myself because I am somebody who has to talk about the things that are going on in my life. Otherwise, you know, I think like most people, they could fester. And um, so I think that for me, it's just always been the way I live and it makes me more comfortable to talk about it makes I, I, I like people who tell me things about themselves too I think that it's just part of being a human is, is relating to other people and, and normalizing the things that we're going through and you know you start talking and then you find out somebody else is going through it or they had a cousin or an aunt or you know and I mean you'd be you'd be very surprised at the things people tell me once they once I tell them I have cancer they open up to me about all sorts of things um, <laughs> But I think that it was it was never for me, it really wasn't a matter of if I mean, I came right back to the office when I was diagnosed and told my boss and we sat in our office and we shared a box of tissues and we cried and and I haven't looked back. That was almost 16 years ago and I haven't looked back. And, you know, like I said, my husband, Nick, is not as open as I am about stuff, but I feel like this is not something to be, you know, ashamed of in any way. This is not something that, you know, it again, it only normalizes it if we can talk about it and certainly fertility is a universal issue um it's not just something that cancer patients face so i feel like i don't know why not talk about it it's more interesting than talking about the weather right yep (laughs) (laughs) i don't know you see me on the soccer sidelines when people like ask me a question sometimes new people will say oh you have you have cancer like, oh, I'm so sorry. Do you mind if I, can I ask you about it? I was like, oh, you don't know? Yeah, I've written a book. I've written a blog. Like, you can ask me anything. I'm like, there's nothing inappropriate here. You can ask me whatever you want. Right. I think that's good because that's bringing it to the forefront. And like you said, um, you know, now for Dr. Morrow to be writing information about it. So doctors who may not feel comfortable in even the whole topic, now they'll have guidelines, so it'll be so much easier to bring this topic up and, and to talk about it. I'm really proud to say that we've come so far in cancer treatment, and this diagnosis is an example where we can sit people down and say, you know, this is a highly treatable and probably a functionally curable cancer. And when it comes to fertility, we're going to move from forget about it, you know, go adopt a puppy, to let's talk about the fact that you may want to have children someday and let's see how that might fit in with our, our bigger plan that you may be able to get treated for a number of years and then potentially be off your treatment and be cured of your leukemia or whatever your cancer is. Life can go on the way it's supposed to. And here at LLS, we have um, a free publication called Fertility Facts that people can download or order. Dr. Morrow and Erin, are there other resources that you think others would find helpful as they consider fertility? I, I think um, people ought to for sure, you know, look at, the LLS for their cancer information. Um, there are other advocacy groups. There's good information about clinical trials, which sometimes include fertility on clinicaltrials.gov. And then, of course, no matter what your diagnosis is, there's probably a, a specific advocacy group or website that's going to get you patient information. You know, when Aaron, with Aaron's diagnosis, CML, there's a National CML Society, a Canadian CML Society, there's an International CML Foundation, there's a number of different. So, so the Internet's a powerful tool. Now, it, it, it gives a lot of information. Sometimes it's hard to filter. So, of course, you know, some of the best are the ones we mentioned first, like like the LLS, like uh, other advocacy groups, like the net, like the government uh, with regards to clinical studies, and of course your doctor and other specifics. And Erin, you might know some secrets as well. I think that there are a lot of you know you have to tread lightly with social media, but there are a lot of groups on on Facebook that I'm a part of where you can just kind of link with different people who are who are going through different things. There certainly are CML patients out there who are having babies and chat rooms and things like that. So 
There are definitely some social media groups. There are some Facebook groups that you can find patients in real time going through this, and you can connect with them, I think, is a good source. And then just talking to, like I said earlier, asking your doctor if there are any patients that you can talk to. Absolutely. One of our podcast guest speakers, she's a young adult, and she was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, and she just started, you know, just YouTubing her entire journey from day one, and now it's gotten to a point where, She's getting married, and all of her bridesmaids are, are survivors that she met, you know, alongside this journey. Oh, <laughs> my so, gosh, that's awesome. Yeah, so it speaks to the power of using, you know, social media or using the Internet, you know, in the right way and not, you know, going on there, just, you know, absorbing everything that you read or see, but definitely in a way that connects with others. One of the resources we have here is LLS Community, which is an online platform that allows patients to log on, create a profile, and speak with other patients and ask questions and share information. And that's so important when you can find tools like that. For anyone who'd like to learn more about Erin's story, um, you can visit www.erinzamitruddy.com. That is E-R-I-N-Z-A-M-M-E-T-T-R-U-D-D-Y.com. And to download or order the Leukemia Lymphoma Society's fertility fact sheet or any other support resource, you can visit www.lls.org forward slash booklets, or you can call our information specialist at 1-800-955-4572. Thank you both so much for joining us today, Dr. Morrow. Thanks for all you do for blood cancer patients and for being such a strong advocate for women in fertility. Erin, thank you so much for being so honest and transparent and letting the world in not only on your life but your journey. Uh, it's been great speaking with both of you, and we hope that others will learn as much as we did on this episode. Thank you both so much. This was great. Thank yes, you. thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.